0: Good morning. If you're a guest with us today, my name's Drew Hunter. I'm one of the pastors here, and we'll be in the Book of Ephesians in the New Testament this morning. So you can open your scripture journals if you have that. Um, otherwise, if you don't have one of those and you have a Bible with you, you can find Bibles under chairs nearby. And the Book of Ephesians is on page 976. And if you don't own a Bible, you don't have one at home, feel free to just take that one with you when you leave here today. Well, I continue to be uh, encouraged um, about our engagement together with the book of Ephesians. I'm hearing from many of you the different ways in which you're using the ZF Ephesians Immersion Plan for us to go deep with this book together as a church family, and um, it's been exciting to hear all the ways you're doing it. Can you just, I'm just curious, raise your hand if you've started to do something in Ephesians throughout the week. That's great. So, let's talk to each other about that. I know many of you already are, but just ask each other, how are you engaging with Ephesians through the week? Uh, How are you immersing yourself in this book? I've been encouraged to hear from many of you, and please continue to let me know how you're engaging with this. I'd love to know what God's teaching you in His Word. So here's why we're in the book of Ephesians together, because this little book can radically transform our lives, Uh, and then not only just our lives individually, but our lives as a church. It can set a new tone in our church. It can help us to continue to cultivate a culture in our church that reflects God's grace to us. And then through us, it can transform the world and the culture around us. So this is a compact book, but it's comprehensive. It shows us that the gospel, this message of God's grace for sinners, is deeper than we may have thought before, and it has implications for every single aspect of life. So, the book essentially has two parts, as we've seen. The first half of the chapters, chapter 1 through 3, is a vision of God, the triune God, and all His glory and His grace for sinners. And then there's a transition to the second half of the book that begins to speak of how God and His grace for us, the gospel, is relevant to every aspect of life. It's relevant to how we relate as a church family. It's relevant to marriages, husbands and wives and children, and relevant to friendships. It's relevant to struggles we have with anger, with sexuality, with bitterness. It's relevant to even uh, spiritual warfare, Uh, There's an extensive section at the end of this book that speaks about that, and so looking forward to getting to those things. But we're still in the first half now, and so it's important to keep the order in mind. First, a vision of God and His grace, then the commands that flow from this. And we don't want to reverse that order in our minds or our hearts because we don't want to put God's commands at the forefront, front and center, and then put God and His grace in the background. We want to keep Jesus front and center, this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and what He's done for us in Jesus, front and center in our mind and in our hearts and in our life together, and then we want to live out of the joy that comes from knowing Him. We want to be radically transformed by His Spirit to live differently. So we're in the first half then, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So let's read those verses together. In Him, that is in Jesus Christ who is just called the Beloved, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank You for uh, overflowing with blessing toward us. We thank You for Your Word, and so we're gathered here together to hear from You, We know that your word is powerful, and you change us through your word, through speaking to us, and so we pray that you would. We pray that you'd open our minds to be open to what you say is true about you and us in life. We pray that you would open our hearts to be responsive. Pray that you'd transform the deepest parts of us by your Holy Spirit, and that we would enjoy you, and that we'd be changed by you, and that we'd be so grateful to be living under your blessing in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what this shows us, this section that we just read. It shows us that the gospel, the central message of Christianity, the gospel has personal depth and cosmic breadth to it. It's deeply personal, and at the same time, it has a cosmic reach, and we often overlook just how deep it is personally. So, we hear words that we just read here, words like redemption, words like forgiveness, and perhaps at the beginning, if you've become a Christian already, you can think back to when those words kind of lit a fire in you. But then over time, we can think, yeah, I know that, ready to move on. We can become numb to it um, and be bored by that. But the Apostle Paul here, you notice, he's not bored with this idea at all. He is in this first part of Ephesians from verses 3 to 14, he's exploding with joy. He's just so thrilled, and he's been a Christian for decades by now. And so, as he thinks about God's redemption and forgiveness through Jesus, he is overflowing with thankfulness to God for what he's done, because he understands just how profoundly personal God's grace is. And we see that in these words like redemption and forgiveness that we'll consider. And then Paul also recognizes that this gospel, this message has a cosmic reach. We often overlook this. The Bible speaks about what God is doing through Jesus, and it doesn't just stop at personal salvation. It doesn't just stop at saving individuals. It actually has a reach that is to the future of history uh, to restore all things in Jesus. The language in this text, to unite all things in Him, in and under Jesus Christ. Christ, and so that's another reason why Paul is exploding for joy. So, if you feel like you don't resonate with the tone of this text, as we're we're looking at this for a few weeks, of Paul's effusive joy and overflowing joy in God and the grace that he has in salvation, then uh, slowing down to consider what does this mean. By God's grace, as we do this, that could help light a fire in us again so that we would live with this kind of effusive joy. And as a reminder, the Apostle Paul is sitting in prison. He's in house arrest while he's writing this, and he's thrilled because of who God is and because of the things that he wrote just here. So the gospel has a depth and a breadth to it that we often overlook, and the reason this text exists is to invite us into the celebration of the depth and breadth of God's mercy and grace to us to wake us up then. So, here's the Apostle Paul writing this to us, overflowing in praise, and by the Holy Spirit we are invited to join in this praise. So, the point of our text is this. We praise God for the deep and the wide blessings of salvation. There's a personal depth to it that we praise Him for and a cosmic reach and breadth that we praise Him for, and so we'll consider this now. So, let's just walk through this text slowly. We'll consider three realities about salvation together first, the triune source of salvation. So, we're looking at these particular verses, verses 7 to 10 here, but they're part of this longer section, verse 3 all the way through verse 14. It's one long sentence um, in Greek. Paul is overflowing with praise to God, so we're spending three weeks considering this lengthy sentence, and we're looking at this middle section here, but we have to remember what Paul's doing in this part. He's praising God. So, if you look at verse three. He, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual or spirit-given blessing. So Paul is saying, praise God for His grace and His blessings to us, and then he begins listing all of these blessings. And one uh, thing we have to note, and we noted a little bit last week, is that God, or Paul's not just praising God in general it's kind of an abstract idea, he's praising God as eternity, as the triune god three persons father son and spirit and so in general he moves from the father to the son to the spirit as he thinks about god's blessings so we think of this text like a waterfall and the source is god overflowing to us with blessing, and the first wave of blessings, which we saw last week, is the blessings from the Father in verses 4 to 6. He's the one who planned our salvation, and He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, and He predestined us for adoption. So, He's blessed us, He's chosen us, He's adopted us. The Father planned it all. And then we move to this section now in verses 7 to 10, and the focus shifts to draw more attention to the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And here we'll see that He accomplishes our salvation through His life, death, and resurrection. And then in verses 11 to 14, the focus begins to uh, shift to the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comes to dwell in us. He's the gift of God, the seal of our salvation, He's called there, this down payment of the fullness of our salvation. We'll consider that next Sunday. So, in other words, there's a triune shape to this section, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that's because there's a triune shape to our salvation. The Father plans our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies the salvation to us. So, last week we focused on the first part. We saw how God the Father takes initiative in saving us. He didn't just plan to save people in general, waiting for people to respond. He chose specific people from before the foundation of the world. So, we spent some time last week thinking this through. We call it the doctrine of election. Election just means choice. So, it essentially means this. If you are a Christian, it's because God chose you in love. He set His heart of affection on you. Uh, God the Father loves all people. And we learn here that He has a special choice and affection for some by sheer grace. The only reason we choose God is because He first chose us. So, some of you, maybe last week that was a hard sermon to hear, at least for the portion that we spent thinking that through. I know that it often takes time to understand what the Bible teaches about God's choice. It raises a lot of questions that we need to think through um, and how the Bible speaks about this. Sometimes it can make us anxious in a season of life when we are wrestling through what, what does the Bible teach about God's choice. But I also know that for some of you, I know last week's sermon was incredibly encouraging. and I had conversations with uh, many of you about that. I've heard how thankful you are for God's mercy in choosing you. And some of you shared that when you learned this, um, at some point in the past, it thrilled you. You were so encouraged by it. And so I just want to share a quick note for parents. Uh, Sometimes I think, or really anyone who works with children and has children in your life, I think sometimes we can be afraid to bring up doctrines that maybe are confusing or harder to understand at first. I know I can be that way. We think maybe a doctrine like this, the doctrine of election, is too deep or confusing for children, but God wants to encourage Christians with this truth, and He put it in the Bible for us to hear, for us to understand to a degree, leaving room for mystery, of course, um, but understand as much as God's told us, and He wants us to be encouraged by this. And there's no kind of age that we can start being encouraged by this. If our, if our trust is in Christ, then uh, He wants to bless us with this knowledge. So, just a quick story um, I was reminded of just this past week. Uh, Ray and Jr., a pastor, um, shared about how his dad talked about this with him when he was younger and so, and, and what his response was. And so, he shared this. He said, One day when I was 11 or 12, while we were doing yard work outside, I can't remember the context, my dad stopped, looked me in the eyes, and said, You know, bud, before time began, God chose you. And here's Ray's response as an 11 year old I was floored. Almighty God thought of tiny me way back then. I felt so loved by God. Years later, when I became aware of the doctrine of election as such, I had no problem with it. I loved it. My dad had begun my theological education in my boyhood in the course of everyday conversation. So, that's an example to me and a model for us to speak freely about the truths of the Bible um, and to instruct children as well. So, I hope that encourages you as well. But this morning, we're going to move uh, past that section, and the shift is going to um, move to the Son. So, it moves from how the Father planned our salvation to how the Son accomplished our salvation. And this is the focus um, not only of verses 7 to 10, but it really is throughout this whole section um, in verses 3 to 14. So, the Son's mentioned explicitly Thirteen times here in these verses, the most repeated way of referring to Him is with this phrase, in Christ. So, just look down at verses 3 to 14 with me, and just let's scan it together. just want to draw attention to that so that we can just see how pervasive this is. The middle of verse 3, the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual or spirit-given blessing. Verse 4, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Christ, the Son. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. Verse 10, the Father has a plan for all of history, and that is, verse 10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that's a lot of repetition. It must be important. And Paul repeats this kind of phrase throughout the the whole book, the, these phrases, in Christ or with Christ or something similar, show up something like 34 times throughout this letter. So, this is an often, often a, way that, uh, a phrase that Paul often uses to refer to the place in, in which we find the blessings of salvation. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we go to be united to Him so that we might receive these blessings. All of the blessings that Paul lists in these verses, verses uh, 3 to 14… All of those blessings, he wants to make it clear that we see, these are all in Christ. So he begins by saying he's blessed us in Christ, and then he doesn't want to just leave that behind. He reminds us with every single blessing that he lists, these are all found in Christ. We receive these by being united to Jesus by faith. And so this is a truth that we refer to as union with Christ. So if that's a new phrase to you, I encourage you to write it down, Um, union with Christ It's often referred to in the Bible with this kind of language of being found in Christ or being united to Christ or with Christ or in Christ. Here's one way to think about it. It's like a marriage union. Um, At a marriage ceremony, a man and a woman uh, form a bond, a sacred bond together uh, with covenant promises, and God joins them together as one. The two become one flesh, as Genesis says. They're bound together, and everything that was the brides becomes the husbands, and everything that was the husbands becomes the brides. They're now one. They're united. They have all things in common, except in our case, it's often true that we actually have no idea of the magnitude of the blessings that we actually get when we begin to trust in Jesus. So, we're, we're like a wife whose new husband sits down on the honeymoon and says, now, I just want to share something with you. Um, I, this island that we're on for honeymooning, it's mine, Um, and I have $20 billion, (laughs) and I'm technically a prince, little-known nation, Um, and a wife would be floored to find that out. That's kind of what it's like to grow as a Christian. Uh, We just find out more and more just how blessed we are to be united to Jesus, our husband. So all the blessings of our salvation are found in Christ, and they come to us through union with Him. The second reality of salvation is the personal depth of this. This is the blessing in verses 7 to 8. Verse 7 says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So the word redemption refers to being set free. It, It refers to being set free from slavery because some kind of price was paid. A ransom was paid. In the ancient world, this was often used to refer to the release of a slave. If someone was able to pay a certain amount, a ransom price, then the slave would be able to go free. So, redemption was always costly. It's freedom at a price. In the Old Testament, the greatest picture of this was Israel's redemption from slavery. Israel was slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and God said that He would come and redeem them. And that's the word that He used. This is a picture of redemption in the Old Testament. So God would redeem them by raising up Moses as a leader to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But there was also a price for their redemption. Uh, They weren't just set free without a price being paid. And we see this because as the story unfolds, we see a number of plagues, which were judgments, from God over Egypt. And in the final plague, the last one, it's the death of the firstborn in every home. That plague wasn't just for the Egyptians. It was for everyone in Egypt, every household in the land, whether they were Egyptians or Israelites. And so, on that night, God gave Israel instructions, and He said they needed to sacrifice a lamb. And if they sacrificed the lamb and then put the blood on their doorpost, it was a picture of taking refuge behind that, under that, the blood of that lamb, then God would pass over them and they wouldn't be struck with this plague. In other words, there's a price being paid. God was teaching them a lesson that they, to be spared His judgment, uh, needed to have a price paid as well. They needed to have a sacrifice. They needed a substitute to die in their place so that they might be spared so, from that day forward, Israel would celebrate that. They'd celebrate that evening by sacrificing a lamb in order to remember how God spared them because they were sinners just like the Egyptians, and they didn't deserve that rescue. It was sheer grace. And so, they sacrificed the lamb to be a ransom price. It was, it was the payment. And the point is that Israel was sinners just like Egypt, and God was teaching them a lesson about a greater sacrifice that was to come that would actually cover sin. That would actually be a substitute for us. And so, now look at verse 7 again in light of that. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, we need redemption, and we have it. And He says, we have it through Jesus' blood and being found in Jesus. So when Jesus came, he used this redemption idea and this idea of paying a ransom to explain why he even came, what he came to do. We hear him speak about it in Mark 10.45. He said this, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came with this single-minded focus to be the ransom price, to set people free, to die in their place as a substitute. He came to set us free from a number of things. Paul's drawing attention to one thing in particular here when he says the forgiveness of sins, but this word redemption is used throughout the New Testament for a number of things we need to be freed from. We need to be freed from the power of sin in our lives. How often have we felt just enslaved to some sin that plagues us, that we we are sure at some moment we're done with, and then there it is again. We need to be set free we need redemption through His blood. We need to be set free from the penalty of eternal death that we deserve. And He did it by burying our sins on the cross. And so here's how this might correct or modify or expand our vision of forgiveness. This means that forgiveness is not free. It's costly. It's free to us. But it costs Jesus' His life. Just like Israel went out of Egypt for free... But it cost the life of those lambs. Those lambs were an illustration of the true sacrifice to come, Jesus. So here's what this teaches us then. When we say that God forgives us, it doesn't mean that our sin's not a big deal, because of course it's just easy for God to forgive us. No, it says that Jesus' death was a big deal, that Jesus' death is what was required. Uh, for us. So, just a couple implications before we keep moving. First, if you are trusting in Jesus, and you're, you're invited to today if you have not up until this moment, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have forgiveness. See the way Paul put that? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So, it's a present reality, and this is why Paul's celebrating it like this. We have redemption through His blood. It's something that we have right now, and that means that we can walk in this every day, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment. Some of you may have a deep awareness of guilt from time to time or all the time. Maybe you have a fear of being caught or found out in some way. An awareness of guilt is ongoing. Maybe you agree in your mind that God does forgive you, but you still feel this sense of guilt and one way you know that you aren't yet fully resting in Christ's forgiveness or that you've slipped from your uh, embrace of it as a present reality is that you're always trying to compensate for your failures. Failures. You have a sense of guilt that, about something you've done, and so you feel like you just need to do something to make up for it. You've got to be extra nice to people in your family or friends or at work or do something to show God that, that you really mean at this time, and, and you can prove yourself Maybe to others that you're not as bad as they might have thought you were. One psychologist made this profound observation about 70 years years ago or so. He said this, guilt is fundamental to almost every human problem of the human personality. That's a strong statement. Guilt is fundamental to almost every problem of the human personality. And so here's what he went on to say. It begets anxiety. It's manifested in the inferiority complex. And it follows resentment. Any counseling, whether it's religious or secular, that's going to succeed in helping people with their problems must know what to do with the problem of guilt. And so this is why the gospel then, when it's embraced, gives people such a sense of freedom and joy, which, which we see here in Paul just overflowing with thankfulness because God has dealt with the problem of guilt. So the gospel answers this deepest of problems in the human condition. It tells us something that we never would have made up on our own, that we are more guilty than we even know when we feel most guilty. And yet God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, says you're free. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm never bringing this up against you again. It's gone. Let's walk forward in grace. And there's a bright future ahead of us. That's what the gospel gives us. So if you embrace God's forgiveness for you, you need to know that he's not waiting for you to prove yourself to him. He's not saying, I will really forgive you uh, once you finally get your act together. No, it's free and it's full. And only when we embrace it as free and full will we actually be motivated to live differently and actually begin to have freedom. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He takes this message, sets us free at the core of who we are, that the Father in heaven smiles over us through Jesus. And that's what gives us a liberated feeling to say, okay, well, with, with that kind of love in heaven and the Spirit's presence with me, I can begin to make some strides because I'm just so thrilled that He loves me. Um, I don't need to then prove myself to others. I can serve them in love. Second thing, we need to know that there's no reservation on God's part in this. His grace to you is not reluctant. Look at verse eight. He did this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In speaking with many of you just through the past couple of weeks about Ephesians, I love how much this comes up. Uh, I love that we love this because it's saying that God just doesn't give us just enough grace and no more, or he'll give us you know, almost enough and we got to kind of meet him halfway with a little bit of our own work. Um, one author said, we don't even bring a penny This is the riches of His grace, and He's lavishing them upon us. And so, we just sit under the waterfall, the Niagara of His love and grace, and we just receive it. He's lavishing it on us, which means that this is from His heart. This was His idea, and He wants us to feel His love. He wants us to know how much He loves us, which means we can stop wondering if he loves us. We can stop wondering if he has enough grace for us. We can stop wondering if maybe we've we've really done it this time. <clears throat> He's not just waiting for us to prove ourselves, which we can never seem to do. He's already given the grace. We have redemption. So we can wake up in the morning and we can take a step out into each new day and we can walk in grace. And then as sin keeps accumulating in our lives, we can bring that to the Lord and confess that to him and ask him for fresh forgiveness, and he gives it and he lavishes it, and he's happy to do it every moment. So this should lead us to do what Paul's doing here and thank God regularly for this. And so very practically here, I encourage us to, to do that, to not just have a disposition of thankfulness for this, to not kind of just have in our minds, man, I'm really thankful for God's grace in the gospel, Uh, but to actually thank him. like Go to him and regularly, daily say, God, thank you. Father, thank you for lavishing grace on me in Jesus. I'm saying that because I need that reminder. I can so often enjoy these blessings as ideas that I believe are true and not actually go to God and thank him for it. And so we can thank God for these blessings that he's given us this redemption. Third So, we've seen the source of this blessing, which is in God as a trinity, and then this personal depth of it, and now finally the cosmic reach of salvation in verses 9 and 10. So, read this with me. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's saying here that God has a plan for history, that history has meaning. There is a purpose to history, and God is revealing it to us. This word mystery here doesn't mean that it's a secret that we can't know, it doesn't mean that this is mysterious, it doesn't mean that this is something that he's keeping hidden from us now. The word mystery refers to something that was at one time hidden but is now being made known to us it's now revealed so it's something we didn't know before but now God's making it clear which he is with the coming of Jesus and so this is why Paul says that God is making the mystery of his will known to us now so what's the mystery well right here it says it's the plan God's plan for all of human history it's a plan for what he calls the fullness of time this means that God is not just watching history unfold trying to make the best of it, intervening at points to make sure it doesn't go off the rails too much. Uh, It means that God is unfolding His plan in history and moving it toward His determined end. He's not just hoping things turn out okay. He will make it so they do. He's intentionally moving history along with a goal in mind. And what's the purpose? It's verse 10. To unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So that key phrase here, to unite all things in Christ, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, my favorite phrases, one of the most important in the book of Ephesians. The word to unite here—it's uh, hard to translate. The idea is that all things are unified under a heading, or they're summed up in a main point. We get a sense of what Paul means when we look at what he says soon at the end of chapter one. So you can look ahead at verse twenty-one and twenty-two with me. He says that Jesus has, since he's been raised from the dead, he's been exalted as the king over all things. So all things are under his kingship. And then Paul says this, he's been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So, I look forward to spending some more time in that in a few weeks. But the point here is that Jesus is the King, and everything is brought together under Him, under His headship and authority. saying Jesus is like the head of a body, and He's the head over all things. So, Paul is saying that history is moving toward this day, when this will be clearly brought to its completion. When all things will be united in and under Christ. That's often what I think in my head when I read this verse because it gets at the point of this. All things being united in and under Christ. And he names two realms here. He says things in heaven and things on earth. He mentions heaven here and we might maybe first think about the location where God dwells, where everything is all as it should be. Everything's perfect. But when Paul uses this word, he's thinking about the spiritual realm in general. You can see that's how he uses the word even in this letter here. So, the things in heaven are the things in this unseen spiritual world, the the spiritual reality, the spiritual dimension of reality, not necessarily a location out there somewhere else. And later in this lesson, he's going to be talking, in this letter, he's going to be talking about the spiritual forces that are part of this unseen realm that we're at war with as believers, uh, the demonic world. And he says, he's saying then that all things will be brought under the headship of Jesus, even things in that unseen world, which means Jesus has the victory. Jesus is the king. And one day, all things will be brought under his headship and acknowledge his rule, willingly or not. And the things on earth then refer to the reality that we see. Ephesians, it refers mainly to people. There's disunity between people right now. We're incredibly divided, uh, have been through human history, between class and gender and ethnicity and cultural practices and preferences. We feel this in nearly every news headline. We feel it after 30 seconds of social media, and we sense it whenever we start reflecting deeply about even our own family relationships with the people we love the most. And what is God doing in Christ? He has a plan. To unite all people together and to bring them together in and around Jesus. In chapter 2, he shows what this looks like in action. He talks about this hostility that was between Jews and Gentiles and how Jesus is bringing them together. They're being united together. They're part of the church together. In other words, where Paul's going with this idea is to a place where we can look around in a room like this and, and have the thought, I never would be here with all these people And share life with them. If it weren't for Christ, He's brought us together. And we can look at at other brothers and sisters in other countries, other parts of America, people of different class and ethnicity and cultural practice, and say, I have more in common with these people than I do with my own neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, because we have Christ in common. We're being unified together in Jesus. That's what God's doing in the world, and the church is where He starts. So, here's the big idea. God's restoring all things in Christ, and this is comprehensive. Christianity is not just about God giving forgiveness to individual people, as deep as that is, as we just saw, but it's also about God restoring a broken world. Ever since the very first pages of the Bible tell us that sin entered the world, and then everything was broken after that. Sin pervades everything and it's everywhere. Everything's fractured and fragmented. Ever since that point, history's also then been moving toward the day when God would restore all things. So, we feel this, right? We feel the brokenness. Our bodies decay and break down. Our memories decline. Some of us, like me, didn't have a great one to begin with, and it starts declining. Our hearts are broken through the loss of family and friends. Our relationships are broken. We have friends that don't talk to us anymore. Marriages that are troubled spouses grow distant. Everything's broken. But that wasn't God's plan from the beginning. and It's not God's plan for the end. He originally made all things good, and He's getting to the day where He will restore all things again and say, and it's very good again. And so, this also means that history has meaning. History has a purpose and a goal. It's a radical idea today. I mean, some people aren't sure what they believe about spirituality, the spiritual world, but they do have a sense that everything has a purpose. Everything must fit together. Everything must have meaning. There can't just be chance. Everything happens for a reason. Other people believe that we are just a product of random chance and that there really is no ultimate meaning to anything. History is not going anywhere that's ultimately meaningful. And what God is saying through this text is radical, and this says that God is giving his people the blessing of knowing that history has a point, and he's told us what it is. We don't know exactly what everything will look like, but we can know that Jesus is the king, and everything will be okay in the end because he's making a new creation with all of his people who trust in Jesus to live and enjoy him forever. So this means that we can have a posture then in the middle of the brokenness of the world, in the storms of the world, in the political climate in America. We can have a posture of hopeful realism, not wishful thinking, uh, not naive optimism, but realism because this affirms that things are broken. This affirms that we're polarized in many ways. We We don't need to pretend that people can all just get along if we all just talk about how important it'd be to get along, Uh, but it's also hopeful here because God is doing something about this brokenness in the world. He's doing what we could never do ourselves. So thinking personally here, if the last few weeks have been maybe terribly hard for you and you feel just spinning out of control, uh, the Spirit is giving us this word this morning to stabilize us and give us a calm sense that everything will be okay, that Jesus is the King, He's lavishing grace on us through Jesus, and He's going to get us there in the end. And the decisive feature of the future is revealed to us. Everything is brought under the headship of King Jesus, which also means in our own kind of current climate, culturally, politically, we may feel as Christians like we're on the wrong side of history, as some would say, but we see that through this, the arc of history is toward Jesus. And if we align with Him, we're on the right side of history, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. So, a couple notes to respond. First, let's thank God for this. I already mentioned it, but let's thank God for all of this every day. I was encouraged one of you shared that you you pray every day to thanking God for the blessing of verses four to six. You thank God for blessing you, for choosing you, for adopting you, and we can just continue on to this one too. Just walk through the blessings of this text and thank God together every day that He blessed us, He chose us, He adopted us, He's given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins, He's lavished grace on us. History has meaning and He's given it to us so we can be confident in Him. And then second, let's reflect God's kindness to one another. You know, the first half of Ephesians, hardly a command in it, just one. Remember, it's all just enjoy God's grace And so, that's mainly what we're doing here in this first half of the the book. But then the second half of the book begins to give implications, and it would be right for us to see where Paul is going in that, because even though the first half is all the lavish grace of God… The whole letter was meant to be read at one time, to see the grace and see how it applies. And so as we trace forward in this letter to see what kind of implication should this have in our lives together, we see where he's going. And one of the places he's going is this kind of lavish grace of God should come at us and transform us in such a way that we begin to reflect that kind of lavish grace to one another. And I'm so encouraged that we see this here in our church. It's just I'm so grateful to be part of a church family where I receive that grace from you and we express it to one another. So encourage us all the more. Uh, but we we also are still broken in many ways, um, and there's much more grace that we can lavish on one another within our marriages, within our families, within our church family. And so an implication of this is to keep doing this all the more to look for opportunities through the week to have a disposition of love and welcome and grace toward one another. Even explicitly, Paul takes this idea of forgiveness that he um, celebrated God for in the text we looked at here, and he says later, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, if we've received this forgiveness, then we are called to forgive one another. And there's not one single person in your life or one wrong that someone's done to you that can be an exception to that command. And there's also not one person in your life or one sin against you that you do not have the resources by God's grace and the Spirit in order to be able to be empowered to forgive that person. Uh, So as we receive God's lavish grace for all that we have done that we don't even know about toward Him, let's have a posture of grace and forgiveness to one another And this is about bringing unity to the world, unity to the world as as well, all things being united in in and under Christ, and especially then as we receive His grace and we reflect it to each other. So let's pray then and ask for the Lord to encourage us as we go that we might uh, celebrate His grace this week. I'll give you a a couple moments for silent uh, reflection and thanksgiving as well before I close. Father, we're grateful that you have not left us alone to sort through our own mess, but that you move close and you give us uh, the only solutions that we need. So thank you for doing what only you can do in our lives. Thank you for giving us redemption and forgiveness through Jesus. We thank you for revealing to us your purpose for history and so we pray that tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, Thursday at six o'clock in the evening, as we lay down to rest every night, that we would, you, your spirit would bring to mind just how kind you are to us and just how much you've blessed us in Christ. And we pray that you would strengthen us to be able to even comprehend your love and to receive this more fully. And we pray that you would surprise us in coming days and weeks with just how much you can continue to transform our church community and get the attention of other people who don't know you, who are surprised to see your power at work among your people. And so we pray that through, through that, you would bring more people to yourself through Jesus as well. So please empower us to be faithful witnesses, showing the world what you're like by your power, and speaking about what you're like as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together and receive a benediction. And as a reminder, benedictions are like bridges. We're taking the, well, the grace that we've heard and received in this time together, and we want to have that cross over into our everyday lives together because God cares about every moment of our lives, and we know we need Him and His grace for every moment of our life. So with that in mind, may the overflowing love of the Father and the lavish grace of the Son And the present encouragement of the Holy Spirit be with us all this week. Go in peace. Love you all.